again, we're doing another syllabus journal entry. This is entry number seven. I want to go through some of the headlines, some of the difficult situation that we have to report on, have to discuss the circumstances of the landscape of our world today. We can't pull the punches. We can't drink the Kool-Aid. We can't just believe in propaganda lies in order to comfort ourselves. We need to look dead into the void, straight into the darkness, so we can prepare ourselves for what's coming. There is a storm coming. The radical nature of American republicanism and democracy and freedom isn't a guaranteed thing. It's always been a one-off. It's always been a fluke. It's always been a fight. An American revolution. Every day, every month, every year, we've been born into it. We've been engaged into this. It's our turn to man the towers, the watchtowers of this country, so to be prepared to defend this place to the end against all other ideologies and all other forms of government programs, the Chinese Communist Party. We got these tribal day. So we have a world full of enemies who are putting it foremost in their minds to destroy our future, our family's future, everything that we have here in this country. The time has come for us to prepare to defend the great victory of this revolution that our forefathers gave to us. So we're back here with the syllabus journal report and we welcome you back and we're here to just discuss some of the incredible headlines and some of the interesting reports that we're getting out that are current today. So I want to run through many of these clips that I have uh, acquired over time just from listening to different reports and different different channels and different areas of, of, of the news media, if you will, as fragmented and kind of convoluted as it's become today. Um, you really can't go on MSNBC or read a newspaper and get any information. You have to have a wide net and to be able to listen to a variety of different points of view to really get a sense of, through the bias and to kind of pierce through all the different ideological slant, the spin, the prism of people's political perspectives, they're, they're, the way that they're trying to push you into uh, your perspective and what you're believing and how, how you're reading the news. They're trying to direct that at all times. So you have to really go through a lot of different variety of, of reporting in order to get kind of a semblance of the truth. On this particular report, we don't have any kind of overarching plan of tying together the facts of history into some larger illuminating picture for you. We just we really want to run through some of the the various divergent topics that are kind of popping through the uh, the, the media today. And, and so you can even see if you're if I have my browser up with this Microsoft browser, they're starting to show um, discussions about Mike Lindell and about the the um, the, the, the ripped off, fraudulent, stolen election of 2020. 
and they, they like to have a little spin on there. To, they like to try to like do like what we were saying, that they like to have their little bias and try to push the reader towards the conclusion that they would like us all to believe that Joe Biden is somehow a legitimate president, which is a laughable joke, I think. There's 150 million, at least, Americans in the United States who know that that's a joke, and that we're looking at it a, a, a reprehensible, illegitimate, tyrannical government out of Washington, D.C. They're all like kowtowing and, and bending over and kissing Joe Biden's ass as if he's like a real thing. And now you can see he's not real. He wasn't really into this. He didn't really campaign. He sat in his basement. He couldn't get 50 people to his rally. And now he, 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 he's obviously just completely smoked. I think they did something to his brain. I think Obama with the Russians put something on it. You know, they fried his brain. They chemically lobotomized the guy. He is completely shot out. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't remember 10 seconds of what he's doing. And it's, it's really dangerous because there's obviously somebody behind the scenes that's steering the, uh, the ship of state. And you can see that the people are not supporting this. The military is not supporting this. But they've put military higher-ups, these fake generals, these laughable jokes, General Milley, the, uh, the, white, the white rage general. And you can see that their, their direct attention and focus is in on the American people, the dangerous ex-military folks out there who might have pallid, pale skin with not enough melanin. And since you're too pale, and you're an ex-military person, you're a dangerous white supremacist now. So now what we have to do is we have to keep a list on you. And then if you're an Afghani, well, you got melanin, right? You're brown. You, you, you got some tan in there. So you must not be part of the problem. So we'll just let you bomb our troops because, you know, we are imperial invaders. You know, you got to listen to the thinking of AOC in order to understand the, the process of our, our collapsed military withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's, it's a nightmare, guys. We're... Is this a nightmare? No, we're awake. We are awake, and this is not a nightmare. So we have to deal with this. So in order to kind of like have a, a complete view of the, and a complete 360 degree uh, panoramic vision of what the circumstances in our world today, we're going to listen to some, some various video clips here, some various discussions, press reports, articles of all kinds. And we can't escape the reoccurring theme that the European power structure, the monolithic, ancient, go back to the 1400s, you know, France and, and Germany and, and Italy and all these, these European powers have worked very hard to consolidate their holdings here in the West. You have to remember that the, the French uh, holdings were up there in, in Canada in the north. The British king, king of England, controlled the central region here. And the southern uh, part of the, the South American continent, if you will, South America, was controlled by the Spanish crown. And they had a hard time keeping hold of their, their territories here. And ultimately, these territories that they controlled became independent, democratic, popular governments. Governments where people popularly elected their own leaders and directed the will and the, the movements of their government in a way that they chose. They chose. They chose between their leaders. And you can see that they've been, they've been uh, these color revolutions have been used by forces within the Central Intelligence Agency and other, uh, you know, other intelligence apparatuses who were there to make sure that they spun out the, the government of Venezuela and created a dictatorship there. And, and just basically the people are there eating out of trash cans now, they're fleeing the country, they're being arrested, they're being starved. The country is totally a pale shade, a dried out 
a skeleton of what it once was just 10 years ago. And so you can see that they're pulling the same manipulate the election, color revolution, bullcrap with Antifa and Black Lives Matter and just these kind of themes of overturning the government. They're turning the apparatus of their destructive pseudo-revolutionary incursions into other nations and they're directing those forces and those powers against the American people just like we saw Hammer and scorecard were used. Powerful central intelligence agency hacking tools were used during the 2020 election to manipulate the election. You can see that uh, the leftists, pro-communist individuals like of the Obama administration and all of his lackeys, Samantha Powers, and all those the leftists who uh, <laughs> like the Clintons, like Hillary Clinton, uh, who were there to make sure that uh, there was a disaster at the embassy. Benghazi attack that Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time where they just abandoned the embassy to terrorist killers who they just gave all the weapons and the mortars and the grenades to and they turned around and attacked the embassy and of course they did they just went to bed they decided not to save the embassy or save the men inside because those men inside were not political affiliates of theirs they were just people who they could expend and that's what you're seeing happen in Afghanistan now you're going to see that the people the troops that are being left behind were going to be Trump supporters they can easily know that it's look we're in the cyber age we're in the technotronic computer age it's easy to know where which is which and who's who. They're saving the people they want. They're getting. They're, they're making a mockery of our system while they get Afghanis out and they leave Americans there to die. This disaster, this humiliation, and this defeat are not an accident. It's not accidental. These are intentional. These are these are the, just like we saw in Benghazi. These are the type of moves that we're going to see our military make. Internecine mistakes. You know that we're going to see betrayal on the battlefield that's going to be incomprehensible. And you, there's no military explanation for why. Why, unless you take into consideration the policies of managed decline that the Obama Biden administration was so popular and famous for. In the past, just the, the manage the decline of the West, empower the, the Chinese Communist Party, and empower the Taliban, empower our enemies. Make sure that ISIS makes a, a revival here. And this is the kind of disastrous kind of games that we're going to see being played because the Uniparty, the deep state system, is serving the party of Davos. They're, sar- they're serving the European power structure, the moneyed elite, the old money, the, the international bankers. These are the individuals, the George Soros's of the world. These are the individuals who are going to be stepping in to use uh, various players. You know, you can see that the Biden, that this, the crackhead son, Hunter Biden, was receiving you know, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a pay-to-play scheme, guys. These guys are complete, corrupt, sellout traders. And our government and our country has never been so corrupted and, and so treacherous. And this is a sellout. This is the process of just turning all of us over to be left behind, just like they, they did to the soldiers and the Americans in Afghanistan. Ultimately, they'll fly away in, in their jet setting on the G6s to their chateaus in, in, uh, in, in China or in France, and they'll leave us all to, uh, to have to defend this country alone. And that's what it's going to come down to. So in order to kind of just further the discussion, we're going to have to take a wide range today. We're going to listen to Naomi Wolf, and she's discussing how insidious and sick the globalist plan for the COVID lockdown and these COVID uh, vaccine passports really has become. Classical liberalism, individual rights, freedom of speech, my body, my choice, um, equality, 
right, equality of opportunity has been almost besmirched. Um, and what is arisen really quickly in its place, and it really got consolidated since November, I feel, is a kind of very totalitarian, CCP style or fascistic, ideological rigidity that I don't recognize, you know, that celebrates. I mean, I, I knew we were in trouble when a bunch of conservatives were deplatformed and left-wing friends and allies and colleagues on social media were cheering. Like that's, there's no one who reads history thinks that's good. You know, no one who reads history thinks they'll stop with the other side. They never stop with the other side. The whole, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I want to make that really clear. That's been part of the, you know, baseless and wrong attacks on me to discredit what I think is some very important journalism around Ralph Barrick and gain-of-function and around other things involving criticisms of the lockdown and so on. But I don't believe in medical coercion. And I know that totalitarian states, like I read history, I wrote The End of America. Your body is where totalitarianism takes place, right? And there, there are reasons that in a free society, there are laws saying, you can't see my medical records. You can't force me to take a medical procedure. You can't force me to have an abortion. You know, you can't you can't force me to have a child, right? And maybe as a woman, I understand the danger of the state invading the body, you know, more than people who don't think about gender and feminism. But the history of totalitarianism is the state saying, you will do this with your body, whether you want to or not. Because once the state can do that, you there's no resistance. You can't push back after that. And so when I see the left embracing a kind of cult around medical coercion and a cult around not asking questions and and kind of rolling back the enlightenment and like literally left-wing friends of mine and loved ones have said don't send me peer-reviewed studies because i don't want to know you know that that you've got evidence that contradicts the kind of comforting a layer of very expensive propaganda at the top, right? I don't want to see it. These are these are sophisticated, educated people. Some of them are journalists. Don't send me peer-reviewed published studies that will show that I, you know, that these guys are wrong. Don't send me information about the CDC having a foundation that gets $12 million a year from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and from pharmaceutical companies. Don't tell me there's something wrong with what has become a kind of pantheon of gods who are unquestionable, that's not the left. You know, that's not the left I respect. That's not the noble tradition of, especially I'm Jewish, the Jewish liberal tradition of back to the 19th century and before that, you know, critical thinking, questioning authority, aggressive, you know, skepticism about a, a priest class and, you know, experts. I mean, we're the people who kept asking questions. Many other people did as well, but I can't believe that the left, with its long tradition of fighting for free speech, you know, Ginsburg, the Howell trials, the Lady Chatterley trials, you know, the, the whole movement of, you know, literacy and and education of working people and, you know, public education, free public and libraries. That's those are should be our legacy as well as everyone else's. And we're just giving it up and saying, you know what, we want to join this cult because it's in power and not joining it is scary. Um, it's terrifying. You know, and of course, this whatever the 
truth of the day is it can change. And we saw that, for example, with this lab leak theory hypothesis. Like we were, uh, you know, heavily censored for writing about that, or actually writing about that. This is a reasonable thing to consider. Not saying this is this is the answer, right? But you know, it took it. It took another year, and somehow the consensus changed, or at least somewhat, maybe not completely. That, to me, is somewhat highlights just how incredibly disturbing this kind of reality is, because that truth can change, right? And then, is history rewritten? You know, this is this is these are the kinds of things I'm asking myself. Well, well, you should be, because I mean, first of all, when I keep saying let's look at the frame that's been imposed on us, there is such thing now as the consensus, and that's toxic. Right? There used to be points of view. I mean, in the heyday of journalism in the 19th century, there were scores of newspapers in New York City alone. Um, you know, when immigrants became literate, all they wanted to do was read a paper and debate or argue in the barbershop or in the, you know, on the street, you, over the pushcarts, yeah. you know, the different points of view. That was America. And the fact that there is a consensus and that if you are asking questions, you rightly did prior to the consensus, which, by the way, is what good journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to break news and not wait for there to be some consensus in which they're allowed to issue a press release. Um, that's very, very scary. And then what is also scary is I'm seeing respected news outlets, when someone does break news like yours or ask good questions or even ask questions, they'll say, that's a conspiracy theory or that's, uh, you know, a Trump supporter, that's right-wing nonsense. And they don't engage with the question. For instance, I, I have on my phone 10 citations of gain-of-function research from Ralph Barrick's lab. It, it's public. It's it, the MIT Technology Review, Vanity Fair, you know, his own CV, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yet, when Rand Paul said, you've done gain-of-function research, and and uh, Dr. Fauci said, no, I haven't. I watched CNN, MSNBC, all these mainstream slash left news outlets interviewing him and say, well, that Rand Paul was really out there. But they didn't say, we looked at your record of funding on your website um, or we looked at Ralph Barrick's re research, which is published, or we looked at uh, EcoHealth Alliance's research, which is published, or the Wuhan Labs research is published. It's in nature. Um, no one anymore looked and said, here's this peer-reviewed published article. Here is what happened to make it more infectious, make this um, pathogen more infectious. Why is that not gain, or why is that gain of function, or why is it not, in your view? Like, that's journalism. And, and I didn't see that happening anymore. So this consensus is working to silence debate, and, and it's working to protect the powerful. And what's very disturbing to me is very quickly in American society, the powerful are turning out to be three or four big entities. Three or four big entities, but you're you're kind of saying they're working together. No, I mean, you know, in politics, I mean, this is one of those moments where if I hadn't been a political consultant to a president's campaign and to a vice president, I wouldn't say things that lead critics to say she's a conspiracy theorist. But when you've been in those rooms, you know that they're the, the, the rooms where the highest level of decision-making happens. Um, a lot of interests can align, and there won't be a press release, 
Um, in fact, the goal is to not have fingerprints and not have a press release. That's what the lawyers are for, right? And there can be, I mean, the highest level of politics is entities working together and sometimes at cross purposes, right? That's, that's why we have the policies that we have. So when you see uh, Mark Zuckerberg emailing the highest medical official in the United States government, and it's in a private email rather than in some public, disclosable, transparent setting, right? You shouldn't need a FOIA to know that that communication had happened, right? That communication belongs to the American people. And it, it by law, it, it's supposed to be disclosed. Um, but those were private emails not shared with the American people in which a gigantic company with influence over all of our lives and through which the media now flows, right, Facebook, is aligning with the guy who distributes all the scientific research money in the United States. And so that's a corrupt situation in my view, um, but it's corrupt on many levels. But what is important about that communication is that in the wake of the pandemic and the way pandemic policies have unfolded, big tech is up double-digit billions in revenue. China is up about 32%, as I understand, in in revenue. Pharma, of course, the CEO of one of the pharmaceutical, one of the uh, vaccine companies just became a billionaire. You know, and I, I read their white paper on their website for investors. They're projecting COVID through 2023. And I would ask, how do they know? But that's what they're offering their investors. And, um, you know, pharma has a gigantic payday. Uh, digital education, right, which we never used to need. Hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, distance learning. Um, so there are some real winners out of the way these policies played out. And that takes some, I wouldn't say coordination in a creepy way, but at that level, all it takes is a pretty casual conversation. It takes an email or, you know, a phone call. And the policies that played out didn't turn out not to be based on science, right? States that locked down didn't do better than states that were open. You know, the jury's out on masks. There's as many peer-reviewed studies that say they're useless as that they're useful. The data are in that children are being harmed through their socialization and language skills with masks, that's still looming in the fall. Um, so many policies that serve to enrich big tech, to drive us all onto our platforms instead of human interaction like this space, uh, which is better for big tech if we're doing everything through their platforms, it's more profitable. Um, fantastic for Pfizer and Moderna. If there's alignment with our government, that's not unusual. You know, the Republicans have their own fossil fuels and Raytheon, right? They Each side has their giant funders. But what's happened is that the pandemic allowed these interests to align so much that they're really dictating policy, excluding us and our well-being. We'll put a pin in it right there. But you can tell, guys, she knows. She's aware. She is trying to find the language to articulate, and they're going to just push her over into the conspiracy theory bin and try to do, you know, frame her as crazy, polarize her as, as a nutcase or whatever, but you know, to silence her or to discredit her. But she's a, a big-time Democrat, and she cannot any longer just keep on drinking the Kool-Aid. She is, can see. She can read. 
she has intellectual honesty and she's able to state what it is and that she's been close enough to this to the center of this whole situation that she is aware she's conscious now that there is a, a larger more dangerous entity that's controlling the different sides of our politics and that's really what we need to discuss we need to get out from underneath this these roles as Republicans and Democrats and if you really look in a thesaurus or a dictionary the word Democrat and Republic Republic a Republic and a, and a, and a democracy they're, they're virtually identical terms and you can go into the nuances of what particularly those you know the, the, those particular terms refer to but ultimately as people who want democracy and people People who want to have a republic, we need to save America. We need to work hard to recognize that this is a disaster uh, with Biden. This is a disaster with the, the situation that they've kind of walked us into. And the, the vaccine passports, as they're being produced, and the, the whole technology and the whole political classification, the entire industry, the entire technological industry that's going to sprout up, that's going to, you know, you know, you can see that in New York City, the entire city, you can't even eat any food unless you have a, a vaccine passport. And you can see that the, this is where the power center of this ideology, this new technotronic ideology is coming from. It's coming down through New York City to the rest of us. It's controlling uh, instrumentality is really being born there in the European Union. The European Union is making it mandatory that you have to be checked six ways and have different COVID vaccinations and also get a get an actual uh a test right there on the spot just to go from one checkpoint to another. So the European Union is, is, is part and parcel of this technotronic tyranny that's being that's kind of cropping up here and it's trying to ultimately, it's up to you here in America to disallow this from happening. Take off your masks, just put away this entire idea of a COVID vaccine, resist it. It's time for non-compliance, people. You have to non-comply. You need to go about your lives as usual and to go back to the, the way that things were and to be human and throw off the this whole sentimentality that's coming down through your TV, through your internet phone, through your government, your governor's office up there in Pennsylvania, I feel bad if they still are trying to make you wear masks. Don't wear it. Make people kick you out of the store. Show other people that you're, you're having courage and that you're not doing it. And they, they'll also uh, work with you to, to have that courage and to, to take these things off. They're obviously there to just become a visible sign of your submission to the the globalist order. And you can see that this wasn't something that, that Fauci thought up on his own or that only the United States had. This was something, this masking COVID-19 epidemic policy is something that broke out across the world and every nation and, and all levels at the same time. So this was a part of the globalist agenda. You can see that they were practicing, getting ready for this. They had some of the dark winter war gaming where they were strategizing before COVID-19 and how they would deal with supposed pandemics that were coming up. So you can see that they were well prepared for this entire thing. And it was a way to throw throw out Trump. And I'm not really, uh, I'm, I never met the man and I can't vouch for him because if we all give our power over to Trump, there's no telling what kind of fascist kind of backlash could come from that. You know, we are, these Republicans with the red hats have already been getting abused and beaten. The Trump supporters, the MAGA people are really getting their teeth kicked in. They're losing, now they're going to lose their sons and daughters in Afghanistan. And 
from what I'm looking at, these reports are saying that a lot of these soldiers are being punished who are not part of the critical race theory, the new woke mentality of the Pentagon, and they're being left behind to man these gates while the uh, the Obama supporting individuals, the soldiers, if you will, are being taken home. So there there's a high level of political corruption and destabilization that's it's being used against the American military. So I think that this is the kind of discombobulation and total psychological attack against the troops that we're going to see just before we have to go into big time major combat. They want to cause the idea that these soldiers are coming home and they're so distraught that they're committing suicide goes to show you that we have a military readiness problem. We're not ready to understand who we are as a nation or what our mission is or what is the purpose of shooting our weapons uh, and who is the enemy. Um, that's, that's the whole confusing problem. Our enemies know exactly what they're trying to accomplish by killing us and killing our soldiers, and yet we are left blindly to strike out at a, at a deep state enemy within our own Pentagon, within our own Washington, D.C., within our own government. That's the treachery. That's what's so hard. That's what's going to have these guys kick my door in in the middle of the night and take me away, is that I'm going to tell you, ultimately, that your, your government is betraying you at the highest level. And you have to be able to understand that. That's why the, in, in the Constitution they had written in the readiness of well-prepared militias because the defense of the people, foreign and domestic, comes down to a, a governing apparatus county by county. So your county should have a local militia there as uh, men who are soldiers or ex-soldiers or National Guard. You should be prepared to defend your own home front there despite whatever the, the Washington, D.C., Pentagon, hierarchical military command and I know that you're not allowed to do that. You go into the brig, you get uh, court-martialed, you're not allowed to, to, to question the orders. But at some level, when the intelligence agencies of other countries have infiltrated the branches of your military and your political leaders so completely with money, you can see that Nancy Pelosi's totally sold out, Joe Biden's totally sold out, Joe Biden's brother is making millions. And so as, the, as the, these corrupt entities put our own boots, our soldiers, in, on the ground in danger... We have to go back and hold the suits accountable. We can't just be like, yes, sir, just jump into the flames and just, you know, make ourselves cannon fodder for suicide bombers. We have to be able to think asymmetrically. And if you're in that position as a soldier now, it's a tough spot. That's why a lot of people are saying they're not going to put their kids in the military. It's not because we're not patriotic. It's because the military is no longer in the service of the United States of America and, and all their oaths to the Constitution and all that are just complete bullshit. And while you're being sent out to uphold your oath they're going to pull the carpet out from under you uh, when you're overseas these these vindmen you know these bureaucratic paper pusher uh, guys up in the uh, offices you know they have no problem selling out the soldiers on the field um, we have plants we have uh, that have probably been raised from you ever seen the movie uh, red sparrow i mean do you think it's a joke we have people that have probably been, uh, since they were children, grazed and grown and groomed into the position, like these Lieutenant Colonel Vindman types. Imagine when, they, when those sell-out agents of Russia and agents of foreign powers and what have you become generals and become brigadier generals and get higher up. You know, that's what's going to happen next with a complete corrupt administration like Biden. 
as we flip through some of the uh, different news reports here, I want to go back and check out the War Room report with Naomi Wolf where she discusses more about the vaccine passport. And she, her eyes are being opened and she's really seen the light. And despite uh, her affiliation with the left, the, in the end, the idea is to create a catastrophe between the left and the right, not to support one side or the other, but to use the different political vehicles and their velocity and ramping them up so that they have a conflict with each other. Typically, your political parties are going to be used to to decide an outcome between different points of view within the body politic. But in this case, the extreme radicalization of the right and the left is going to be used to create a conflict, internecine, harmful, destructive conflict for America. And this really serves the interests of the European power center, uh, their new uh, empire that they're building there. They're interested now in helping to support and finance the CCP, which is an obvious weapon against American independence and sovereignty. So let's listen to this little clip from War Room with uh, Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf. I want to go now back to Dr. Naomi Wolf, who warned us all about this. Has been on the show, hammering, hammering, hammering. Why is France important? People are sitting there going, "Hey, you know, uh, Bannon, we understand you used to live over there. You love it, blah, blah, blah. But why does it have any importance, Dr. Wolf, in the American people's lives? And why should they focus very closely on what's happening in France right now?" Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, let's look at history. You know, France and the United States were brothers and sisters in the fight against monarchy and tyranny and the kind of language we just heard on MSNBC, edicts and mandates, right? Uh, The French risked everything, people died, so did we, in order to establish a republic. Um, And so I want to tell you all that I had a first-hand download from a friend who's in France right now, and she's describing that every weekend there are massive protests. And even Le Monde mainstream newspapers are recognizing that these protests are ordinary people from all walks of life. The Gilets Jaunes the, on the far right have joined. You know, the left has joined. The center has joined. It's parents. It's healthcare workers. Absolutely mainstream. And they're saying liberté. They're saying freedom. They're saying end to medical dictatorship. Macron is a dictator. And I want to also talk about the healthcare workers and the vaccine passports very briefly. Um, a lot of these protesters are healthcare workers. They have been told, which is so shocking, and it's coming here if we don't resist, that if they don't get the vaccine, they will be forced out of their jobs. So, it really interestingly, 50% of doctors and 40% of nurses have not been vaccinated, right? And they are angry that this is being forced on them. And so, their signs are saying, you know, yesterday you clapped for healthcare workers, today you're calling us murderers. You know, yesterday you called us heroes, today you're saying we endanger people, which is just, of course, not scientifically correct, uh, as we know. So um, they're furious, and it is super scary, and I really think it's worth noting that half of healthcare workers, given yeah, every chance I, of I, the vaccine, didn't get it. Yeah, I, I, want, I, want, I want to go there. Right back on the TV on MSNBC, as Dr. Wolf came back, there's a big, they're doing a thing that my, my team told me about over the weekend. Young and Influencers being paid money by Zuckerberg to convince young people you got to get the vaccine with no scientific data. Just it's cool, it's great. The young woman went to the White House last week in the white platform shoes. She's being held, heralded as as, and this is all Zuckerberg money, psychological warfare. 
to convince young people to do it. Why is it in the United States that Chris Hayes had a segment of the other night that he was shocked at? The, the head of the nurses' union said, "No, we don't. We we don't want this forced on us. We want to make our own choices." I think it's forty percent. They say is they think it's twenty five percent. It's really forty percent of healthcare workers in America will not get this vaccine. And you would think they would have all the information. Dr. Wolf, you would think that they would have the inside baseball, right? They're the ones at the front line. They're in the ICU units. So what is going on? This is the thing that the government can't get over, is that the healthcare workers themselves are sitting there going, no, I'd like it to go a couple of years of testing, and then I'll come back to you, right? Yeah. I mean, the most striking thing that I was told uh, this morning is that there is an amendment to this law, not an edict, passed by the National Assembly in France that allowed the French parliamentarians not to be forced to get the shot, um, which really says it all. Why is Zuckerberg, like, let's take a big picture look. It's so important. You know, I've been saying and saying and saying, and you are one of the few news outlets in America that has seen how important this is, that the vaccine passport is the end of liberty as we know it, and we see this happening in real time in France, which is our tomorrow, right? This is the marriage of big tech and big pharma and big government. So why Zuckerberg, right? Look what Microsoft is doing or whoever has the contract in France for these vaccine passports. My informant said the vaccine passports that pass Sanitaire, the health pass, it's digital, it's a QR code. You have to use it to get on the train, get on a bus, get on an airplane, go to a restaurant, go to a swimming pool, go to tennis, right? Teenagers can't meet their friends without it. It's closing people out of society, but what it also does is it geolocates you as I warned everyone, so that if you're sitting in a restaurant and someone has tested positive at a table near you, you have to, you get pinged. You don't even know that person, and you have to isolate for 10 days. And so this is a way that all of society can be shut down at will. You know, dissidents can be, oh, testing positive, businesses they don't like. You know, you mentioned the real estate play, real estate owners who, you know, they want your stuff, they want your assets. You can be shut down. And so France knows that this is the loss of liberty. They're up in arms, as they should be peacefully. And this is our tomorrow if it is not for um, the patriots who are standing up. I remember when Naomi Wolf was coming out and other people were talking about this, and it seemed to be just unthinkable that they could be using this supposed vaccine passport to become a complete biometric control system, an ID system that would be global and would, would be able to control your life in such an extreme way. It's exceedingly alarming that we have to look out for this kind of, um, it, it's really coming down from Klaus Schwab and his minions over at the World Economic Forum and these different globalist centers. And these, these large corporations are really engaging in it too. They're requiring their employees little by little to get these vaccines or be fired. And we're, we're getting into a place now where we're getting to the point of crisis where we're going to find out who the shills are, who the, the ne'er-do-wells, who are who is really going to get down and obey and who is not. And that's really what it's going to come down to. And so you'll have the situation where you can polarize and really isolate certain segments of the society and you can do it technotronically. So it's, you know, you have Facebook and Twitter out there and they're able to, they're going far beyond being just simple modes of communication between people and they're becoming instruments of totalitarian control by the globalist elite. We'll have another commentary here. I'm, on, I'm back on geopolitics and world empire, and you can always discover some really uh, lucid, free thinking, and there's a wealth of 
intellectual tools and equipments and equipment opinions by people that are uh, that we need we need to hear a wide range of opinion uh, from people who have traveled the world in different areas who have looked at different schools been through the different universities of academia and have uh, have a wide range of of understanding about the world and are willing to be critically honest and so that that's the kind of information we desperately need in this day and age and so we're discussing an article by patrick Fagan, and he discusses the vaccine passport and the uh, technotronic silicon valley censorship of all the information that the globalist tyrannical state isn't willing to allow out there to be heard by people. So they're controlling us economically, they're controlling the information flow on the internet, they're controlling us through this kind of medical tyranny that we're seeing develop. They're forcing us to to submit to their biometric databases and on and on and on. So let's listen to this fascinating report here on geopolitics and empire. Anyway, from the start, so something felt off. You know, the statistics weren't really right, really basic things like they weren't doing per capita statistics, they weren't saying how many positive cases as a proportion of how many tests, because it was quite obvious, at least at the start, that they were doing more tests, and as a result, getting more positive uh, cases. Um, so that was the first thing that clued me in, and then it's just been a bit uh, bonkers since then. Um, and they've, as, as a behavioral scientist, I've seen all of the uh, techniques that they've been using, this has been extremely obvious to me. And I will say, I'm not an epidemiologist, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to speak on that. I, just, I do believe this virus exists and it's unpleasant, and if you're old, sick, or fat, it is a real threat to you. Um, but uh, what I am an expert on is manipulating people, the public, uh, social cohesion and politics and the fabric that ties people together and mental health. And on those three bases, I've been extremely worried about everything that's happening from the start. Um, before lockdown was even announced in the UK, I did a literature review, which means I searched Google Scholar for about an hour. I found all these papers where they looked at, for example, bases in Antarctica and simulated space missions and solitary confinement in prison. There's a huge amount of research on social isolation and confinement, which shows it's actually really, really bad for you in so many different ways. Uh, all the screen time that that kids are having now is really bad for them. Um, there's all this just really obvious stuff um, that's been happening that's not good for us. Um, so that's been my take on the pandemic, just concern at the nudges and manipulation that's being used, concern about the impact on social cohesion and uh, mental health. And um, whenever I, at least in the early days, tried to speak out about it, uh, people didn't want to hear it. Um, and that was also not good either. Uh, so it's been a quite challenging, uh, yeah, scary time, I think. Yeah, and I would say too that uh, back in December of 2019, um, I was living in Kazakhstan, so right near ground zero, right, Wuhan, China, and my, my family and I, we all got terribly sick and had strong symptoms of you know pneumonia or, or bronchitis, which we can't confirm if, if it was COVID or, or not, but if it was, then you know, we had it and we got over it. It, it was pretty bad, but again, we, we got over it. Uh, and then, you know, I want to touch on so this this passport now which a lot of people are saying so they're trying to introduce this digital COVID pass vaccine passport 
without which you basically won't be able to participate in society. And I'm hearing from different countries different things like if you don't have this now, you won't be able to go into restaurants and cafes. I just heard from someone in Mexico that they were not able to renew their voting ID. Uh, it's called the INE, which is the institution that issues your, your IFE, your like voter card, which people use basically as their ID in Mexico. They were not allowed in the building unless they showed a vaccine certificate. So it's getting pretty crazy. And so um, since you touched on it, I, I might as well start out with this kind of worst case scenario where we might be going and then kind of reverse engineer it ba uh, back and which is what i tend to do i kind of look at the worst case and then see how they're trying to take us there so you know one question is if you see this as the chinese social credit system and and then i want to read a quote from your from your article um where you kind of describe a potential black mirror worst case dystopian scenario of the, of the future. And I think we're already starting to get there as I mentioned. So here's the quote. Uh, imagine the year is 50 PR post reset. You're trying to get into an Amazon supermarket to buy a bug burger for dinner. The facial recognition software scans your face and flashes red. The door locks and denies you access. Your smartphone recently overheard you speaking critically of the government. You must go home and quarantine where your smart lock will only allow you out once it has been determined that you are no longer at risk of spreading these contagious ideas. You have to do your part to flatten the curve of viral misinformation. After all, it's for the greater good, end quote. So, you know, we see in China thousands, if not millions of citizens are banned from buying train tickets, plane tickets, getting visas to leave the country prohibited from getting good jobs or even getting a job at all, getting into higher uh, education. I personally met people in Kazakhstan who were banned from flying and had to take 50-hour train rides because of their political views and activism. In the U.S., Canada, and Europe now, uh, I can cite examples of law-abiding citizens who have had all their social media accounts terminated, including Airbnb for housing, Uber for transport. They, they've been put on a no-fly list. Their bank account has been terminated. You cited Andrew Torba of, of Gap. Uh, and this is all for their political or religious views. It's happening now. And for me, this should speak for itself. You know, just seeing this drives me crazy. And I think people should be in an uproar because it's going to happen to them next. You know, I've already had one financial account terminated. My Patreon, my Facebook's been muted. My YouTube has put me on strike. So I'm already a frog in the pot feeling the heat while the other frogs are enjoying what they think uh, is a sauna. So, I mean, your take on the vaccine passport, is it the social credit system? And how do you think it's going to develop? Um, I think uh, that you're right. There's all of these threads which are coming together, which make it quite clear where it's headed. Um, so total tracking and collecting of your data and using that to predict certain things about you, predicts your future behavior, things that you might not even know about yourself. I mean, they can do that already. I mean, there was an example of Target, the retailer in the U.S., who predicted that a teenage girl was pregnant before her father knew, um, and they knew that based on her purchases on her loyalty card. And this that case study was about 10 years ago. Um, there's all sorts of things that they can do since then. I mean, Spotify uh, has a patent to listen to the ambient background noise uh, and kind of predict where you might be and how you might be feeling and send you targeted ads based on that. There's all sorts of research um, about how your digital footprint can be used to tell what your personality is, and that's fairly benign. But they can also, there was a famous Facebook-like study which found from Facebook likes it could predict your sexuality, if you use drugs, if you drink alcohol, if you're depressed. These are things which most people probably wouldn't want Mark Zuckerberg 
to know, and not just to know, but to use against you, because these things can be used to craft nudges, persuasive messages, um, which uh, can influence you better than just standard messages. Um, so if someone's really social, uh, they're more likely to be nudged by a positive, kind of reward-focused, um, exciting message. Um, and again, that's fairly benign, but if you start to be able to predict people's deepest insecurities, kinks, prejudices, um, then you can really manipulate them, really, in a very powerful Freudian kind of way. Um, and, and then there's just good old blackmail. I mean, everything that you've ever Googled or watched or done online or bought that's tracked somewhere. Um, there was a talk in the article about this priest who, um, he, or a Monsignor, who was against uh, Biden uh, because of Biden's stance on abortion. And then a, a small Catholic blog apparently bought all of this very expensive uh, consumer data and did some very sophisticated analysis to be able to de-anonymize it. Uh, I mean, if you believe that they did that, you believe anything. But um, they basically found out that or reported that this Monsignor was using Grindr, uh, so he, like, his life was destroyed, he wasn't a threat to Biden anymore. Um, I myself was uh, in a chat group uh, that was like a private chat group, um, and that got leaked and kind of tried to use against me. Fortunately, I didn't say anything bad, but they tried to, to twist it any way they could. Um, so, yeah, we're really heading to quite a dangerous place where all of your data can be used against you. So that's one of the threats. And then the, the other one is this crazy kind of schizophrenic um, oppression of, of voices and silencing of people and this um, kind of mob mentality and witch hunts and things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think those two things coming together and, and the government, I mean, really, the danger of these vaccine passports is twofold. One is that it will make the state omniscient. So that means they'll know everything. They'll be able to read your mind, predict your behavior, know everything that you've done. And then the second thing is it will make them omnipotent because they can use that to allow you to use money or not, to survive or not. So they can make you do anything that they want you to do. Um, so it just seems inevitable. I mean, maybe I'm being cynical. Maybe, you know, the state is, the politicians are nicer and more considerate and more human than I'm giving them credit for. But I don't know, after the last year or so, I'm just not sure. I uh, I see, I'm, <laughs> I guess people can call me a realist or, or, or cynic. I see it the same way as it's kind of inevitable. I mean, my question is, how does everyone around us, you know, whether... British people, or I'm in Mexico, Mexicans, or Europeans, or how do people find this, like, okay, or, or normal? I, I just can't understand, like, the life we've li lived up until now with, you can go everywhere you like, with, do many things, and I don't understand how people kind of are on board with this. Um, I think there's, so I actually did a Twitter thread on why can people, did you see? Yeah. Well, why some people can see what's happening or what might happen, other people can't. Other people can't. Um, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, obviously, there's things like conformity, where people just tend to follow the crowd. Um, there's a great video clip. I don't know if you saw it. There's people lining up for a vaccine center, 
And then somebody gets wheeled past on a trolley having a seizure from the vaccine and the people just still are staying in the queue, not don't seem to be disturbed or anything. Right? So um, we just tend to follow the crowd, we tend to believe authority figures, um, there's those kind of things. Then on a deeper level, uh, what, it, what are we asking people to to think and to face up to when we say that there's something going on. We're asking them to really face something quite terrifying and traumatic, which is, um, well, number one, that this hellish dystopia might be on the way. You know, a lot of people would rather, at least subconsciously, not face up to that. Um, number two, that people have been gullible and foolish to go along with this. Nobody wants to hear that. And number three, that uh, we're all dying eventually, we're all decaying, and all of these things which you think have protected you from death, the face masks, the social distancing, actually they haven't done anything, and you're just as likely to die in the grand scheme of things as you ever were. So these are all things which we, we don't like facing up to things that are really quite traumatic like that. <clears throat> Patrick Vagan is right and that he's nailing it and that people really just don't want to see it. They're too terrified. They're too cowardly to just face up to the reality of what we're being confronted with and what the what it suggests for our future and what kind of fight we'll have to take on to really fight the future, fight the algorithm fight judgment day like in like in terminator parlance you know you the the stage is set and everything is prepared for us to be destroyed the, the great question in the world is can american democratic republicanism survive and i think we've demonstrated within the country with our the enemies that are within and the enemies that are without that we're on a suicidal path and then we can't survive and they're preparing for a future where we'll be decimated and they've learned the lessons of the American century, and they're prepared to do whatever it takes to, to destroy us. And we are not facing it. We're not opening our eyes, we're not looking at it, and we're not being honest with ourselves or with our kids. And just like all you out there who, who voted for Biden, and it didn't really matter if you voted for Biden or not. It's the fact that they were going to use a cyber attack and stuff the ballots and, and use a thousand different ways of uh, approaching the the election in each individual county and in each individual state and they had prepared prepared since 2016 to basically steal it and that the, the fix was in there's nothing that could be done but the, the fact of the matter is is you still voted for biden you gave him your power even though they were stealing it and they were cheating you and they were really corrupting the vote because uh, he, he 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 didn't win the election in 2020 but they were able to use their their dominion voting systems that were online in order to hack and to scramble the results and give the victory to Biden. They did it right in front of our faces, and ultimately we found ourselves powerless to do anything about it because a whole segment of society wanted this crackhead, retarded child molester in the White House, and you were one of them. So you're the reason why America can't survive is because you're a moron, you watch TV, you walk around with the, your, your smartphone in your pocket as it's burning a, a skin cancer into your body, and you listen and to whatever it says, and you do whatever it tells you to do, and you no longer function as a free-thinking, sentient human being. You're like a cyber slave, like a cyborg clone of the imperialist state. So ultimately, you know, men are going to have to free themselves from the federal tyranny, and they're going to have to free themselves from these foreign globalist, dictatorial psychopaths 
And they're going to have to free themselves of you because you become the enemy, just like the media as they as they gag themselves over there at the Washington Post and the New York Times trying to think of new ways to create lies because they're just trying to create fictitious realities, put it in print in order to move their bias forward to try to destroy their political enemies. And that's all this is. It's, just, it's a campaign of constant manipulation and, and lies. That's what you're getting from uh, CNN. That's what you're getting from Facebook. That's what you're getting from Twitter. And the American body politic, the American individual mind it has to survive. It, 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 it can't survive in those circumstances. It's time for you to take those apps off your phone, to get, take away your power from them, to start to go back and read some books, go back to the library, go back to the, to the analog, hard copy way of doing business, and prepare for a future. We're out here. We're growing chickens, guys. We're going to have chicken eggs. If I have it my way, I'm going to have 50. I'm going to have 100 chickens running around this place because whenever they unplug, I'm not going to need to go to the that, – that's the plan. The plan – I mean, I don't know how you all are going to do it. Are you near Freshwater? Do you have 10 miles between you and your neighbors? Are you near a big city? Do you have access to food supplies and foodstuffs? You, you need to prepare yourself. This is not a game. These people are preparing to destroy this country, and you need to wake up. So as we're keeping pace with some of the different journal entries and the weblogs and the different podcasts and different articles and videos that I like to, to monitor or keep up with, we have here a interesting discussion here, and this is Thomas... J. Lorenzo, and he is doing a Mises Institute discussion regarding the theory of socialist destruction and the American reality. And so just to fit this in here, kind of in an eclectic way, this is the kind of mix, this, this is the kind of information that I have to keep tabs on in order to make sure that I'm informed. And so let's just give a listen to this fascinating lecture. You know, I'll make true. Okay, but he came to culture, commissar culture, and one of the first things he did was to introduce sex education in the elementary schools in Hungary. And that, that was enough for the Hungarians to kick the communists out. So they were, they were gone. That, that, that there blew up in their face. They, and, and Hungarians are still at it today, aren't they? They're still, they're still fighting this. Okay. They, so they established a think tank, and they called it the Institute for Marxism. And that didn't pan out either too well either. Because by this time, uh, Marxism was associated with Stalin and the purges and mass murder of millions of people. And so they, these guys apparently thought, what are we thinking, Institute of Marxism? So they changed the name and they called it the Frankfurt School. And so, you know, who the hell knows what the Frankfurt, it sounds like, you know, what do they teach people how to make hot dogs? What, what is the Frankfurt School? You know, so, but it was originally the Institute for Marxism. And so these, these people all fled uh, Nazi Germany and other parts of Europe and ended up in the United States. And many of them, uh, for some reason, they settled in Santa Barbara, California in the 1950s, which uh, must have been one of the most beautiful spots in America in the 1950s before all the pollution and, and the congestion, traffic congestion and all that sort of thing. And they just hated everything. They hated life. They wrote book after book about how horrible life is in, in America. And, and these are people who left Nazi Germany. And they're, and they're writing books about how horrible Santa Barbara is in the, in, in the, in the 1950s, as, as far as that goes, the Frankfurt School. And so they, they settled on their new theory, new class struggle theory. They decided factory workers weren't enough. You, you, you can't take over the government and impose 
communism just with factory workers. You need more. So they famously came up with a new theory of class struggle of the oppressor class versus the oppressed class. And the, the oppressor class is white heterosexual males, and the oppressed is everybody else. That way you have not just the factory workers, you have just about everybody except white heterosexual males. And even then, if you're a white heterosexual male and you're a socialist, you're okay. Yeah, you're, you're okay. But, but I, I should say non-socialist white heterosexual males are the oppressor class. Okay, they denounced, you know, book after book, they denounced uh, traditional morality. They called it fascist. So if you're a religious person, you believe, you, you try your best to live by the Ten Commandments, you're, you're like Hitler uh, to, the, to these, these people. <clears throat> if you're interested in this, you should familiar, familiarize yourself with uh, <clears throat> Herbert Marcuse. He's one of the, the cultural Marxists, and his, uh, his famous, uh, well, some of the things he's famous for, he wrote a book called Eros and Civilization, where he championed, uh, and this was very popular with college students at the time of the 60s, as you could imagine, polymorphous perversity, he called it. And he, and he, he advised college students, don't work, have sex. And I went to school with some guys that sort of took that to heart. <laughs> Ended up uh, in my generation. He's like, you see why Marcuse was a very popular guy among college students in the 1960s, who, who all now who now all run all the universities. These people, uh, but his, his more damaging. That was just silly, you know, ridiculous. Stuff, but his more damaging is uh, his theory of liberating tolerance, and this is a thing that that animates. Uh, what we see today going on on the college campuses when when a conservative or libertarian shows up at Berkeley and they set the building on fire and, and, uh, and, and things like that, uh, you know what? Well, you know, I've, I've known uh, Charles Murray, the political scientist, for thirty some years, and uh, and his daughter graduated from Middlebury College. And uh, and so the political science department there invited him to come up and give a talk on his new book, since they apparently knew some of them, since he'd been visiting his daughter over the years, and he knew the political science faculty there. And his, he's, a, he's an MIT political scientist himself. That's his background. And so he goes to give a talk on his new book about the American work ethic, you know, sort of labor economics thing. He shows up. And, you know, the usual mob shows up screaming and yelling, calling him a fascist and a racist and all this stuff, you know, drowning him out. And, uh, and the woman, uh, the female uh, political science professor who invited him, uh, one of them, one of these thugs grabbed her hair and jerked it so hard that she injured her neck. They had to call an ambulance and bring her to the hospital. And then they left in, in a car, and they chased them through town in cars. They just literally fled, uh, you know, in cars out of, out of the middle, tiny little Middlebury, Connecticut, or Vermont, rather. And so, so that's the sort of thing uh, you see. Now, now I, I first got wind of this, uh, gee, I'm out of 15 years ago. I had a student uh, who was uh, very uh, interested in hate speech. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, this is when I first got wind of the fact that college students have already been very, very uh, educated pretty well in Marcuse's theory of uh, liberating tolerance. And his theory is basically that only the oppressed classes deserve freedom of speech because the oppressor class uses speech to keep the oppressed down. And so, uh, you know, events like this, you know, uh, you know, we have all these white guys like me, uh, the oppressor class, 
if whatever we're telling you is probably um, I'm, we're giving you tools that you can use to oppress your fellow citizen, the oppressed class yes. in, in, in whatever what state or whatever country you, you come from. That's what we're doing here, according to uh, people like Marcuse. And so, so college students in America and elsewhere have been taught for many years now that you're taking the moral high road when you do things like this. If, if a Tom Woods or me or Charles Murray shows up at a university and you organize a mob to harass them and injure them and, and uh, you know, invite Antifa to come in and do their thing, you're taking the moral high road. You know, you're not you're not being a, a scumbag enemy of freedom of speech. Uh, and the academic administrators, uh, of course, uh, usually orchestrate a lot of this. That was my experience at, at my university, where the top, the top administrators were cultural Marxists. And uh, when I first, it was a Jesuit school, when I first got there, the old priest, uh, Father Selinger, was a great guy. I published an article in the Wall Street Journal, and he he. he, uh, he took me out to lunch to thank me for doing that. And he would say things like, you know, our parents will read this and they'll send the next sibling along to, to the school. So he was he was very business oriented. And then the newer generation takes over and, he, and they turn out to be a Herbert Marcuse worshiping cultural Marxist nut jobs. And, uh, and, and, and that seems to, seems to be the characterization of a lot of the university administrators these days, an awful lot of university administrators. And so, so when you see these things, these, these, these uh, setting, literally setting fires to buildings at Berkeley, uh, they think they're taking the moral high road and because they want, they want to destroy these ideas. This is Misesian destructionism in action. We'll just stop it there, and you can see that as we're kind of perusing our files and listening to different episodes and reading different articles, we're trying to narrow down this information. We're trying to take a closer look and focus in with another magnitude greater into the detail of what he's saying. So what he's talking about is these universities, and he's talking about how once Jesuit schools seem to be proper places with proper education, and now this next generation is enacting a new policy, a new regime of ideological programming. And you're going to see it play out. And you can see that the masters of the university, the masters of academia and scholasticism and education, the masters of learning against learning, if you will, and to put it in the Medician kind of parlance, you have to recognize that the Jesuit order is the one who is handling the intellectual, psychological, and the educational development of our kids. You know, so a lot of these universities are going to be Jesuit schools, and a lot of them are just going to be schools that follow the Jesuit schools, follow after them. And, and you can see that the long march through the institutions has taken its toll, and ultimately the, the Jesuits, the fathers, the, these instigators against Americanism and against American freedoms and independence are going to come out and hold up their signs and say Black Lives Matter, and they're going to push forward this Marxist agenda. While they stand back from it and pretend like it was just some kind of organic, natural development within faculty lounges, but they're, they're, this really is a most egregious effort to push forward Marxism as an, a weapon to be, move us closer to communism. And so you can see more, you can see them operating on all sides. And you can see that the, the military is going to be betrayed, and they're really betraying them by forcing them to take these vaccines, uh, forcing a vaccine on an army population. You don't know what that is. 
you know, you know, it's definitely not the same stuff that they gave to the uh, the guys in the White House, right? I mean, so you can see that they are going to be able to pick and choose who's going to get the the uh, the shots that give you the seizures and which shots are going to be the ones, you, which troops to leave behind to get blown up by the Taliban and which troops to make sure you take out of harm's way. And the, these are going to be the dub, double agents, the double agenda, the, the double dealing of the Obamaites that are in the background of Joe Biden's administration. Turn now to the Dinesh D'Souza comments, and I find his work to be outstanding, and I regard him to be one of our greatest Americans. I mean, really, I mean, look at this guy. I mean, he, he was put into prison by Obama, and he's got a lot of courage. He's articulate, he's super smart, and he's really holding the line of American independence and freedom. And these are the kind of people that, the kind of individuals that we really desperately need to step forward in America today and to speak out and to have the courage of their convictions. Oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. But these were the vast, vast majority of people in the Capitol were what the FBI itself calls one-offs, which means one guy who goes, I'll go in there, I'll see what's going on, I'll take some selfies, I'll then leave. Now, all of this is, think of the significance of this, because for months now, through the second Trump impeachment, through these various hearings, there has been constant um, references to a, an act of terrorism, to a um, uh, seditious conspiracy, to insurrection. That's been the kind of guiding word. And think of all the responses to January 6th, the militarization of D.C., the uh, presence of the army, uh, automatic weapons on, on full display, third world style. All of this is because it was, there was an insurrection. The Capitol Police who testified before uh, Pelosi's kind of bogus task force. Insurrection, insurrection, insurrection. Words are really important here because you might remember going back through most of last year when these massive riots were going on around the country. And in some places like Portland, they never stopped. Um, by and large, what the left was doing is, is sending out uh, um, messages to the media, uh, don't call this a riot, uh, don't call this violent, and that's where you got all the rhetoric from CNN, mostly peaceful protests, even though, you know, flames behind the reporter, people are dropping like flies, mostly peaceful. Um, so this was, this ideologically freighted or loaded rhetoric is designed to immunize the left while putting maximum weight on the so-called offenses of the of the Trumpsters. Now, on the first glance, I was tempted to say, wow, this is the FBI finally, you may say, reluctantly dragging and screaming, producing a moment of honesty. But the FBI is not known for its honesty. Uh, and normally, when they make a public admission like this, you have to ask, why are they doing it? Even if they thought it wasn't um, uh, an insurrection, did they, uh, are they having a, a pang of conscience? We better say what it really is. I don't think so. I think what's really going on, and I'm not the only one, by the way, here's Matt Getz, I just want to quote him from his tweet. The game you're watching is not the game being played. He goes, today's narrative change is all about protecting FBI assets and militia groups who animated the criminality on J6, on January 6th. So what is Gates getting at? What he's getting at is he's saying that the FBI, now that their hand is in the cookie jar, and now that people are starting to ask questions like, 
What was your role, FBI, in January 6th? To what degree did you instigate this? To what degree did you provide planning materials? To what degree did you show where the exits are? To what degree did you provide funding uh, and perhaps even uh, instructions uh, on what to do? The FBI does not want to go there. It wants to shut that whole line of inquiry down. One way to do that is to eliminate all investigations and examinations of coordination. Just say, okay, well, it's, it's not a coordinated attack. It was kind of a one-off. So now we can just move ahead with the prosecutions of individual cases. Let's not really turn a spotlight to what we did. Um, in a recent column, the columnist Glenn Greenwald said, look, uh, with the FBI's role here, since we know now that the FBI infiltrated all these major so-called white supremacist groups, not really white supremacists, but nevertheless, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the FBI was in all of them. So either they knew January 6th was coming and they did nothing, they were so incompetent, such losers, they couldn't even stop an attack that they knew about, either that, or, more likely, they were in on it, they were part of it, they were themselves pushing it, and given the history of the FBI, I think we know which of those two options is more likely. And so, on the one hand, while this is a welcome public admission, it seems to me pretty clear that the FBI's public acknowledgement now that January 6th was not a coordinated attack is kind of a tacit admission that they are the ones who coordinated it. I find myself smiling as I listen to the genius of Dinesh D'Souza as he breaks this entire situation down and he goes into this hour-long episode where he continues to do what you just heard, which is just dismantle the entire argument and really disintegrate the federal governments, which I'm not going to put this all on the FBI guys. I mean, this is really the federal government. This is the federal deep state regime, you know, that have been put through their paces. They've been used like a bunch of ass clowns to do the Mueller report and to run around and investigate Trump and just the, the hyper toxic politicization of the federal bureaucracies and investigative bodies. It's just unreal. And it's really what's led to the pollution that we see in the White House and now in the defense sector there in the Pentagon as they all have to sit down and watch these, you know, these white guilt videos. It's it's almost, it's, it's, it's really just, it's mind-bending that this is the kind of all-encompassing demoralization and debasement of all the different facets of our American life here. Uh, they're, they're demoralizing us politically and the military, our economic, that the value of our money is devaluing. And you can see that we are on a clock. And we are, we're set to, to go. America here, I mean, people can try to keep on staying on unemployment so they don't have to go to work and sucking from the government teat. And until those funds run out and, and, and you've just weakened yourself, you just spent months and years and years not earning any income, not working, not developing any of your skills, just laying there like a good communist on the government dole. And they've just taken your American soul and ripped it out of you. So you should be out there, you know, foraging for new opportunities, looking for new income streams, developing new skills and techniques and, and educating yourself. But you're just laying there eating Doritos uh, on the government welfare payment because of COVID-19 wearing a mask. So you guys are the ones, you know, who I'm describing there who need to just jump off a bridge somewhere and get out of here because we need more Dinesh D'Souza's who are going to stand up and fight and, and make sure that we have another a, a generation of American independence, freedom and liberty, and constitutional self-government for the people 
by the people, not for the party of Davos, by the party of Davos. And when I say party of Davos, we're talking about the the global economic forum, the globalists over there, uh, who really represent the interests of Europe, and the interests of Europe really represent the interests of the city of London, and really we're trying to remain free. We're trying to keep our American independence, and keep our fight, our declaration of independence alive, and our fight for freedom against the Redcoats. It's nothing has changed. Nothing has changed except for you're unemployed, on the government dole, sitting in your house, afraid to come out wearing a mask. That's one of the, the main integral factors that has changed, and you no longer have your weapon to, to defend your home with. You just, you know, you have your TV remote. But as we go into some more of these different video clips and articles, we really got to discuss the election of 2020 and the nature of the fraud that was committed there. You can see that it's not going to go away, that these audits are going to go into many more states. I think we're over 30. We're going to eventually all 50 states are going to be audited. And there really shouldn't be any fear of that. We should be not afraid to just take a look and see what the results are, especially the Biden administration. They should be encouraged that their 86 million or whatever uh, ridiculous uh, votes were all totally solid. It was the most you know, clean election in history and all, all these claims that they made, we should have no resistance. But of course, they're fighting tooth and nail. And it's really going to lead ultimately to the Supreme Court. And you can see that on some level, they're waiting and they've waited for the body politic, the populace out there to kind of like get this through their heads and kind of have enough time for all the information to circulate and everyone, even internationally, globally, to kind of get a glimpse of what was really happening. And the more you stand back from it, the more you get this 2020 hindsight view of what took place and we can look at the data and we can look at all the uh, cyber traffic that was captured by the different institutions and the government and the the data is right there and uh, of course it just takes time for people to process it for people like Naomi Wolf, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, people who have intellectually honest bones in their body which many, many of us apparently do not as we want to just continue to carry on with the propaganda and, and imbibe ourselves with whatever our uh, the gods of our of our thinking, you know, those who rule over the, the party, uh, the you know the, the ones who were not allowed to. I guess if you're on the left, it's the Clinton and Obama crowd. You just bend over and you spread it for whatever they want, right? Whatever they tell you to do, whatever 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 the uh, the Facebook globalist elite want, you're gonna just do it. You're gonna mask up. You're going to send in five ballots. You're going to cheat in the election. You do whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes to just feel like you're a part of something. And so ultimately, we have to recognize that there's a whole lot of Americans out there who are just going to resist you and fight fight you in order to not allow your uh, the creeping toxicity of your contagious ideology to control our lives. And you've voted for Biden. You wear the mask. You send in six ballots for Biden, you um, you do whatever it takes for the party, right? So you're ultimately the enemy of America as well. As the left and the communists, if you will, try to move us farther or farther away from the, the founding of our constitution, they want to unmoor the government uh, into a fascist state. In order to do that, you have to unmoor it from the U.S. Constitution, which gives the government limits and boundaries and lines in the sand by, about which it cannot cross. And of course, a, a fascist state, the, the likes of one that the deep state and the party of Davos are trying to erect here in America, must do away with these 
constitutional strictures. So we're going to talk a little bit with Rudy Giuliani here. We're going to hear his point of view. And we're, we're seeing here that ultimately it's the counties, the municipalities, the states themselves that are in charge, that have control of the presidential election. And of course, they're trying to federalize that. Uh, you can see that Zuckerberg with the hundreds of millions of dollars and Facebook money was out in the election. George Soros, many other players, the Chinese Communist Party were out to make sure that Trump could not win, that he was cheated out of the election results. And we can see that they wanted to make sure that somebody other than the states, somebody other than the local municipalities had control over the results. And so let's talk about it. Well, but Georgia has the, the video. Georgia has the video in which they come up with a pathetic excuse for what was going on. It's quite obvious. If you look at that video, they were stealing votes. They threw out the people. They locked the doors. They cased the place like uh, bank robbers do. And then they pulled these votes out from under a, a, a blanket. And then they started counting them. And you can actually see them on several occasions putting voted four, five, or six times. Uh, what do you need to, to have the state legislature look well, at? Well, you've seen now. You've seen Roffensper Roffensperger is now. After you warned everybody, Roffensperger wants to take control of Fulton County. Well, he's he the wants last to go and the investigation. That guy shouldn't be taking control. He should be under investigation. The guy's a, 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 a brazen liar. He's he's the guy who told the president only two dead people voted. I have sitting in right. my. In my office over there, 800, 800 uh, uh, dead people that voted, and they're just the ones that died in 2020. And uh, when they finish the audit, our expert estimates it'll be three, 4,000, up to maybe 8,000 dead people. But there certainly are 1,000. And he yeah. told the president there were only two. He also said it was a perfect election. Perfect. So did, by the way, so did Krebs and election. so did Chad Let's so did Barr, so did Chad Wolf, so did guys the president selected. They're all vipers. Okay, plenary authority. The quiet part out loud, Rudy, you said it. They've been mumbling it on, on CNN because they're in the mumble tank on this. Bush v. Gore. Please go back in time and explain what Bush v. Gore said that empowers Arizona, Corman in uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, and what's happening down with Brandon Beach and Burt Jones in Georgia right now. What was the, the big finding on Bush v. Gore was what about this? Well, the typical, I mean, a typical of the Democrats, they just trash the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 says the state legislature will determine the electors. It doesn't say that Congress has a role in it. If you go to Article 1, the election of members of Congress, the state legislature shares that role with Congress. But in the case of Article Two selection of the president, it's solely the state legislature. Congress has no role. The governors who usurp the power of the state legislature have no role. I mean, you start off in Pennsylvania, the whole vote's unconstitutional because the governor and the secretary of state changed all the rules. They have no authority to do that. In fact, the Constitution basically prohibits them from doing it. So that's what, that's what Mr. Clark is relying on. I mean, I... I I don't think I know Mr. Paul, but I reached the same result myself, and so did every lawyer that went to law school and read reached the same result. Now, finally, I think Georgia is the place where 68,000 people voted who were under 18. Now, the margin was only 10,000. And what does Mr. Rastenberg have to say about that? 
I mean, he ran, you know he ran an election that was a disgrace. And then he hang, hang on. All the, fact, all the facts, all the facts are going to come out. Where all the facts are going to come out. Facts are going to come out. We'll get to we'll get to the facts. I want to say the structure. Bush v. Gore. How did that reinforce what you just said? What was their specific findings in Bush v. Gore? The that court, the court, the court reiterated a precedent from 1895. In 1895, the court said it was a, a dispute about some electors, and the court said the final decision goes to the state legislature. In fact, even if they've delegated, meaning like a lot of state legislatures have given the process to the governor or the secretary of state. The Supreme Court said in 1895, any time the state legislature wants to take it back, it's their power because the Constitution only gave it to them. In Bush v. Gore, they reiterated that and basically reaffirmed that that's still the law. So this troublesome election of 2020, I think it's going to carry on and continue on, and people are going to continue to fight, just as the the other side politically is weakening with this disastrous Biden retard and the coward and the kind of maniac, I can't remember her name, the, the vice president, whoever, who is a complete unfit and unelected, because what we're saying is that these people are pressing on to us a tyranny because they were unelected, they're illegitimate, their power is false, and all the decisions they're making are erroneous. But you can see the, the danger and the disaster of that is our, our enemies are smelling this weakness. And you can see that ultimately, it's not going to be up to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, they're going to support the precedent that they supported during Bush v. Gore, and nothing is going to change. Ultimately, they're going to come out, and we're going to find that the states have the power to take down Joe Biden. That's as simple as that. Just, just as we have the power to vote him into office, the state legislatures have the power to put their electors wherever they choose to put them. And ultimately, that's going to be the undoing of Joe Biden. I, I don't think that the people up in New York City, the, the Don Lemons and the Rachel Maddows of the world are prepared to recognize that this reality is hitting. But I think that the confidence of the body politic, the confidence of the American people and the Trump supporters is solid. And that the, the legislatures that are receiving, it takes time. It takes months and months for the vibes and the repercussions of all this political infighting to really hit. But I think the people in the state legislatures are being empowered and encouraged to take the power back. And that's what you're going to see happen. All right, so as we're going through our different show notes here and looking after these different reports, and we have another interesting little take here, and it goes to the question of uh, Jesuit education and the growth of totalitarianism around the world, and we can see that the, the question of those who are educated within the Georgetown set, the Washington, D.C. crowd, uh, how that is really playing out. These people who are supposed to be our, our betters, the people who are supposed to be our, the doctors and PhDs and advanced theoreticians in the world around us who we trust to protect the the American enterprise, we have to call into question if, I mean, if they have been educated by people who who serve the papacy and who are really interested in introducing fascism, we have to wonder where that's all going to take us. So let's listen to this interesting uh, chat and interplay here and, and learn from it. 2016. See, this is, this <laughs> is all war horse. Okay. okay, here's the point. Why then is the Hill got a, 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 a lead story today? Is Republican GOP Senate about to give Biden massive, huge, huge political win? Boris Epstein. Why are they doing that? Because ever since the establishment Republicans lost their minds 
after January 6th completely lost their minds. Liz Cheney, and yes, Mitch McConnell, and yes, Kevin McCarthy, because they either went on the floor and, and, and spatter up complete nonsense about, about President Trump, etc., etc. Ever since, especially in the Senate, the establishment lost their minds. They've never gotten their minds back. They have absolutely no idea how much strength and backup they have. Here's what they here's what they do not account for: that we all know Joe Biden did not get 81 million votes, yep. and we all know President Trump got at least 75 million votes. When you have that kind of base and you're 50-50 in the Senate, no, don't go giving a huge early Christmas gift to a weak, pathetic president. I want to go back through this because nobody's talked about it. I want to go back through the Cortez kill show. Right. Walk us through right now. Your strategist, you go to Mitch McConnell, say, "Look, you may hate Trump, you may hate MAGA, you may, but you guys, the donors, you have a once in a lifetime, you have a once in a lifetime opportunity here to kill the, what we kept saying in the show, kill this presidency, this regime in the crib." What do you do? Right, and, and by the way, I would say one of the reasons that the Senate Republicans are so feckless is probably the worst thing to ever happen in the United States Constitution with the 17th Amendment, the direct election of senators. That's another topic for another time, but I just want to put that out That's there. That's academic. That's in-depth. If, if we were not directly elected these senators, if they were elected by the legislatures, we'd have senators. We need more of this, Cortez. You think these guys went to Georgetown? Yeah. By the way, all three of us, Georgetown graduates. A lot, a lot, a lot of and uh, Hunter Biden. I, yeah, I, I don't think. By the way, I don't think the Jesuits want to claim any of the three of us. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't, definitely, I don't, let's put it this way. Not the, ones are, not the ones at Georgetown. Definitely not okay. me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I went there when it was a Catholic university. Well, as we take in their personal comments, we have to recognize that the Jesuits of Georgetown University are controlling Washington, D.C., and they've been doing that for a long time. And you have to recognize that, that Mitch McConnell and this Kevin McCarthy fellow who calls himself a Republican and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, they, they all go to the same church. They go to the same church with Steve Bannon. So you have to recognize that this that there's a third party in between our politics. There's the Roman Catholic Church. They have four members of the Roman Catholic Church who are active, who go to church with Joe Biden, even though people are talking about we should stop giving communion to Joe Biden. It's really just interplay for, for the goyim, for the public, mass, for the, for the stupids out there, right? For the people who don't know what's going on. So really the, the interplay here is that the Republicans and the Democrats are controlled by a central party that no one can really see, and that is the party of the arch Bishop of Washington, D.C., the party of the Vatican. So if you don't think that really makes a big difference, then you're just deceiving yourself because they're playing on both sides of the aisle. I think that's what you're seeing when you see this Mitch McConnell kind of doing his layup uh, in working with the Biden administration and how uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy and some of these other feckless Republicans came out just supporting the Democrat election. And I think that's why you'll see that the media is supporting Biden and Silicon Valley is supporting Biden. And everybody in the world is supporting Biden except for the American people and the people who actually are charged with voting for him. So you need to recognize that this is a tyrannical move. And this is an autocracy that's been put into place. And Joe Biden has just had his brain fried. And, and Harris, the vice president, is just a complete prostitute, really. I mean, that's the, she, she, was, she was giving head and blowjobs to the governor of California, and he liked her so much, he put her in charge of like the schooling planning commission, and somehow this, this prostitute ends up as the vice president, so with the perverted Biden clan. 
So we were really in a terrible, terrible straits here. We need to recognize it for what it is and be prepared to recognize that the Georgetown Jesuits are educating the Democrats and the Republicans and, and sending them through their foreign schools of service and, and sending them to, to the CIA and putting all these different components into place while we are uh, the Amer- hapless American people are being prepared to uh, to be yeah, a very epicenter for World War III. And I think from based on the episodes of this podcast, you can kind of comprehend what that means. Let's keep on going here. Let's keep on spinning through the news and taking a look at the different kind of notes that I made over the course of time as I'm listening to different programs and recognize that as Africa is beginning to hold hands with the Chinese Communist Party and as we're getting bombed out of Afghanistan, we're hearing reports that the Chinese Communist Party is setting up their internet guys, their their wireless stations, their different like command centers with computers are being starting to be set up as they're, as they're working with the Taliban and help them orchestrate the removal of the American military from the country and set up whatever deal that the CCP is going to make with the Taliban. I'm sure they're going to set up, I'm sure they want the mineral rights for the region. I'm sure they want to you know, give them whatever they want. I'm sure they want to help them to find the Americans in the area and butcher them. So we can see that the Chinese Communist Party is going to be using every, every single front in this decline, this managed decline of American hegemony to really begin to take advantage and to profit from the vacuum uh, of power that's beginning to take place as you can see the the American crisis and leadership is becoming so pervasive that you, you wonder if the, the ability for the American military, for the Navy um, to f- be ready to fight tonight, uh, those kind of ideals are really out the window as we have to imbibe ourselves with critical race theory, which tears a, tears apart team cohesion, unit cohesion, it tear, tears apart American cohesion altogether. While that's happening, we have to recognize that we're being demoralized in our humanity because the Chinese Communist Party has no problem. Problem, uh, working with the Democrats and the liberals to tear apart human bodies to uh, harvest organs. So organ harvesting of aborted uh, uh, fetuses, which are really babies, and especially when you get into to human babies who are 46 weeks old, who have hair, fingernails, a heartbeat, and who laugh, and then you just suck them out of the vacuum, and then you just take apart their organs and sell them to different scientists. You're, we, this is happening in the United States. So this is the kind of sickening report that we have to be alarmed by. Let's Let's unfortunately have to listen to this. Here, here's why I got we're, we're simulcast in Mandarin. We're blown through the firewall to La Bajing to f- people fighting against the Chinese Communist Party. We had a special on last week where we had actual whistleblowers from China talking about live organ harvesting. Our audience, because I've been following the story for a long time, we had a doctor that's done the surgery that's left China. And we had an investigative reporter in Vietnam in hiding. The audience melted down. And now today we're getting information that an esteemed university, like the University of Pittsburgh, a great university, is essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to hype this, is essentially doing live organ harvesting of babies that are that are 42, they call them fetuses, these are 42-week uh, term babies. Sean, I saw you there. What is going on up there? Look, I, Steve, I, I saw it. I was horrified by it, and I spoke out on it immediately. I mean, this is the University of Pittsburgh. This is right in my backyard. And, and if the allegations are true, right, it looks like kidneys were harvested from unborn babies while their hearts were still beating. That's grotesque. That's gruesome. It's evil. And, and there needs to be a, a full-scale investigation. Uh, funding needs to be revoked or, or suspended. And if any of these allegations 
are true at all. Criminal charges need to be need to be leveled. I mean, this is horrific. This shouldn't happen in this country. When I was in Afghanistan, Steve, one of the things that struck me is the children, right? When we get to Afghanistan, we're driving all around the country. Those kids in that country have nothing. They wear burlap sacks, run around in bare feet on the border. Um, they're caught in the middle of hell, in the middle of combat, yet they still run around and, and experience joy um, in that country. And I thought to myself, my God, like these kids are just like American kids, right? They do the best that they can with what they have. And through 16 months of heavy combat, we saw our enemy in Afghanistan do horrific things to those children. And our men, the men that I led in combat, were just so committed to taking care of them. And by God, we've got to do the same darn thing at home. I mean, this is wrong. This is something that both Democrats and Republicans should be able to come together on. Sure. Sean, Steve Cortez here. You know, I want to ask you more about the situation at Pitt. The main building there is called the Cathedral of Learning. Uh, if these reports are true, it's the Cathedral of Infanticide. I mean, this is just a, a horror show. But on top of the barbarity, no matter uh, which child it is that is being abused in this manner, there's also a racial component here, according to the reports, that they literally had quota systems where they wanted a certain minimum. percentage. 25% percent, minimum, minimum so to be minorities. I mean, this is taking it no. into just an entire other level of evil, isn't it? Yeah, look, Steve, you're exactly right, but this shouldn't surprise anybody that's watching this program. Planned Parenthood was was founded by a racist eugenist who wanted to use abortion to control the black community. And uh, abortionists have always been at their core uh, racists. And again, Democrats and Republicans in the state of Pennsylvania need to come together and say enough is enough. This is evil. So there you have it. You're going to have to find out for yourself if you live here in America and you're intoxicating yourself with all this uh, political rhetoric and ideology, you have to ask yourself, where do you really stand? Are you really trying to protect uh, your body against the encroachments of the government uh, into your personal liberties? Because it doesn't seem to be the case with these COVID vaccines. There doesn't seem to be any kind of boundary with the government on on our bodies. My body, my choice doesn't seem to be a real factor anymore unless you're a, a woman who is just interested in having an abortion. So I don't know if abortion rights really have that much interest for me anymore. I, I'm more interested in the life of, of the child, the child who hasn't got a chance to live yet. Maybe we should abort the mother. Maybe we should just save the child and abort the mother. And I think that's my new way of thinking about that. How selfish, supremely selfish do you have to be? So you're willing to just take the life that's growing in your belly and, and cast it into the toilet and suffocate it and kill it in order to, so that you can go on having your rights to your body and to your freedom and to your experience in life. But the, the baby, what about their experience in life? Don't you think that baby is trying to breathe, trying to, to nurse, trying to uh, get comfort from its mother, I mean, or from its father? I mean, these are things that, are, they're, they're, this is a dehumanization that's just so monstrous that you can expect from the left. These are the same people with the different color purple hair and the body piercings and the multiple bisexual partners and the, the multiple abortions. And you just, you lack, you lack human uh, qu- uh, character characteristics any longer.
and them out at the Antifa Black Lives Matter rallies, uh, having hysterical breakdowns. And you can find these people, they don't have any marriages, they don't have any children, they don't have any kind of right to expect the American dream to include them. And yet they're trying to direct all of our futures and they're trying to go into the classroom with our children and teach them this is a war. This is an ideological, an open, hot, philosophical war that we have to you know, recognize as taking place. I think that as an American enterprise, as as a people who are so well educated and are able to communicate so freely, still, despite all the censorship coming from big tech, I think that we're really all beginning with what, what they like to say is wake up. What does that really mean? Is it means that we were submerged in a dream state, in a sleeping state, where we couldn't react uh, rationally to the conscious and real dangers that are taking place. So as we're waking up, we're starting to be breaking through the cloud of disinformation and subterfuge and propaganda that is really trying to direct our lives and to try to pacify us and to direct our emotions uh, in, in a political way in one way or the other. And so I think that we're starting to really get a, a grasp of what the actual nature of the problem is. So I really like these comments by Dave Ramaswamy. The that we have in the Washington, D.C. corrupt uniparty system that really seems to be serving internationalism and it seems to be serving the party of Davos. It seems to go off on these trips to uh, to the G7 and the G8 and to take part in all these different internationalist multilateral forums and, uh, and they're really they've given themselves over to the internationalist cause, which is the 1% against the 99%. And so at the bottom you can see that they're moving their fascist system forward because before we even get to the conclusion of what's happening to us, you already have Antifa, who's being funded by George Soros, running around the streets saying, we are the 99%. So they're, they're already fostering and fomenting the conflict. They're already heading the opposition parties. They're already creating the actual nature of the conflict around us in our civil society and in our the spheres of our, our industry and our private corporate sectors are, are no longer free of all these politics and you have to wear a mask, you have to go to the seminar and learn how you have white guilt, you have to, to get a vaccine, you have to do all these things or to stay in lockstep and they're, they're self-destructive things. They're emotionally self-destructive, they're psychologically and physically de deteriorating your body from within. So if I was you, I would just get a new job, find a new line of work buy some property and start farming. You got 10, maybe 20 years, who knows how long of a period of time, decades that we might have to try to survive the rise of this internationalist, totalitarian, technotronic tyranny that we're facing. I think intellectuals like Dave Ramaswamy here have nailed it right on the head and we need to pay attention. Okay, Dave, let me go back to you. We got a technical problem with Raheem. Um, let me ask you that. Why would the Republicans, why would McConnell try to bail out this administration, Dave Ramaswamy? Because that's what you're having here. He's got to, he's imploding totally on the world stage. Why would he, why would they try to bail this guy out? 19 Republican senators voted for this infrastructure bill, which is, is a predicate to the 3.5 trillion. Why in your mind would they do that? See, I think, Steve, it's just like uh, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden are the two faces of the failed uniparty strategy going back decades. So according to probably Mitch McConnell's worldview, he's just bailing out his ideological compadre. So, and, and the few other Republicans going along with it, I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe many of them don't want to run for office. 
in 2020 and beyond. So it's just just their final hurrah, if you will. But as you as you rightly said, the country is realigning in a new model. You know, the economic sovereignty, economic nationalism, cultural uh, sovereignty. So the point is. They are just pursuing, they're just doubling down on a strategy which has been shown a failure for the last two decades. And I think the underlying subtext of this entire thing uh, that we must recognize is that Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden have been working together for three and a half decades and or more and they both go to the same church. I like to look at the pictures where you have all these different political personalities coming out of Ash Wednesday where they go to Lent and they get the little X on their forehead where the priest puts the little ashes and all X on their forehead, a weird occult ritual that again is completely divorced from anything to do with Christianity. Uh, it's, it's a Babylonian Egyptian tradition to go get a mark on your forehead, to have ashes put on your forehead. It's, it's occultic, it's ritualistic witchcraft, if you will, priestcraft, as we were saying. It's, it's a practice of, of uh, ceremonial magic that you just, you don't comprehend. If you go back five or six hundred years, they didn't put ashes on a little X in your forehead. Um, if you go back before the 1800s, people didn't pray to Mary. Uh, and people didn't say that the Pope was infallible. These are all new decorations and religio-cultic flourishes that have been added, hyper-added, superimposed onto the Catholic Roman Catholic ritual. And I would say after the period of 50, 1540, when the Jesuits are getting involved, you're going to see all this, these different kind of religio-cultic imperial nuances, uh, the, the, the Hierophant, the Pontifex Maximus, the occult throne, all these ideas are, are things that the Jesuits are well aware of as they are trying to build up a world dictatorship around the Vatican. So as we are all waking up to this uniparty, the, uh, this, the, this point where the Democrats and Republicans meet in Washington, D.C. and become one new entity, we don't have to look very far for trying to understand who they serve and what their purposes are because they all go to the same church. These are subtle distinctions that we're not allowed to say out loud. These are the quiet parts that no one says out loud. These are the things that you're not allowed to know. These are these are verboten. These are forbidden information that you're not allowed to know about. That ultimately, in the inner chambers of their deal making, and the, the secret is that ultimately they serve the same God, uh, the same deity there in Rome. So as we're moving forward here, we have some more very interesting highlights that I uh, that I wanted to introduce. We have Matthew Arrett, and he's talking here on geopolitics and world empire. And again, you'll be able to see the nature of the theme that I'm beginning to expose here as we listen to different thinkers discuss uh, their research and their books and their articles and, and op-eds and all the things that they're doing. Ultimately, they're letting the cat out of the bag one little uh, whisper at a time. So we need to pay attention closely. Uh, in your book, you, you know something that strikes me is is uh, this kind of idea of the, the road to hell that's uh, paved with good intentions. And so we have uh, you detail the, the French Revolution, and then you you kind of talk about how that was hijacked by you know the British Empire or, or the British proto deep state, and uh, essentially that it's kind of like it was kind of like a color revolution. So there's a continuation from the color revolutions we're seeing today. 
um, ab abroad that, that are being used in foreign countries or the one that was used in the U.S. against uh, Trump or going back, you know, to the French Revolution. Uh, later you talk, talk about how, you know, the same thing happens in Canada where the 1867 founding of Canada was designed by British geopoliticians to keep it locked into British Empire and that it was the third time in 90 years Canada had a chance to truly become uh, sovereign. So maybe could you comment a bit on, you know, what, what, what that struggle with the, with the French uh, in France and then Canada? This is why I love, I love talking to you because there's there's so many interviewee, interviewers that I, I interface with who I know they don't read the book, but it's like, no, it's, cool. it's okay. But you actually read everything. <laughs> you read everything. That's, that's just so good. Uh, yeah, no. <clears throat> Sometimes it's, it's, there's two ways, I think, of uh, approaching an idea um, of, of what is or what was. Um, and with, you have to both look at what was something, how did it happen, but also how didn't it happen? Where did it fail to happen? Um, because we're, we're dealing with... with um, a complex dynamic, you know, and, and, and history from the standpoint that I'm trying to encourage people to approach history is that it's it's a, it's not really about the past. It's about the futures that didn't happen or that did happen. So history is about different competing ideas of the future. And some of them failed. Some of them succeeded. Some of them should have happened, but didn't because people were assassinated or, uh, you know, there were, there was artificial interventions to disrupt the flow, the natural sort of blossoming of states that would have been more in harmony with human nature and, and our, our happiness and, and will. Um, so what were those potentials? And it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult. It's a new way of thinking for a lot of people to think about history that way, but it's, it's very, it, you, you start getting a lot of rich drama, a lot of rich and having it, reading Shakespeare, reading Rabelais, reading, having some literature under your belt helps a lot too, because you get sort of a taste for what is the substance of, of real drama and real history and real tragedy? Because history is all about tragedy and people who either sometimes didn't, were not tragic people who, who had potential and they, they lived up to it like Lincoln, despite the dangers or Ben Franklin um, or Kennedy, they were not tragic people, though what happened, you could say, uh, to the society that failed to take up the torch was tragic because they, people could have been bigger. So to go back to your question on the French Revolution in Canada, there are two case studies of where the American, um, this, this process failed to properly blossom, though it could have. And, the, I mean, for those who don't know, <clears throat> Canada is set up as the only monarchy of the Americas. And that's a bit confusing for people. Like, why is, why is it a monarchy? You know, we're about to have an election. Uh, it was just announced randomly. Like, that's how things work in a, in a monarchical parliamentary system is you don't have set organized election processes like literally the minority government just said i want to we want to have an election they asked the queen's hand in canada the, the legal head of state called the governor general for permission the governor general gave a royal assent so now we're announced that we're going to have an election in three weeks um it's that's weird that's a weird way of doing things so what is Canada and why did we fail the Ben Franklin challenge is, is one of the early chapters where I make the point Ben Franklin was up here for weeks um, in 1776 before the, the signing of the declaration. He wanted, obviously, had a lot of uh, allies in Quebec who felt a great sympathy for the U.S. cause. They, they, did, they had no love for the British who had abused the, the French quite a bit after the Seven Years' War. So why did they fail to still, despite all of that, accept the offer to join as the 14th colony? So I, I elaborate upon that. I go through some of the elements of the British intelligence operations using Jesuitical 
operatives as well who were firmly ingrained and entrenched in the Canadian establishment. Uh, like Bishop Briand was one of them who basically passed a rule saying that you will go to hell and burn forever because you'll be excommunicated um, as a farmer if you fight with Washington. So that, that scared, I mean, burning in hell forever was not attractive. Um, the other thing was the uh, warm blanket clause. So, you know, we were given by British, you know, we were, Briand said, the bishop said that if we stay allied to the king, we will be granted local controls, local democratic controls for the first time that we would have never dreamed of having before. And so that was a bribe. It was called the the principle of enfourapé, which is a French word currently in use to describe being screwed over. But the word comes from English in fur wrapped or wrapped in fur. So they basically just wrap people in, in a warm furry blanket and be like, just stay with, stay with, stay with Papa. And uh, so we failed. As a result, there was a British intelligence hand always available in the Americas to subvert uh, U the USA itself and to over time. And this is not a new thing. And in my book, I go through how um, you had people like Aaron Burr, the guy who sets up Wall Street, the Bank of Manhattan, who kills Alexander Hamilton, who um, <clears throat> interfaced very closely with his nephew, the governor general of Canada, uh, to create the first effort in 1800 to break up the United States when it was just a couple of decades old. And the idea was that, you know, he was running for the presidency against Jefferson. He was going to win in all likelihood. If Hamilton had not intervened in Jefferson's defense, Burr would have won. And uh, the idea for, from that standpoint was to create a northern free state uh, confederation allied with the British and tied into uh, British territories in Upper and Lower Canada. So that would have be, been one new nation confederation that would have dissolved the constitution completely as the slave states would have become their own confederacy again allied to the british because who's buying the cotton it's the british who's controlling the shipping routes it's the british who's controlling the banking system internationally there's still the city of london back then that's not a new thing so the fact that aaron burr is also in the middle of setting up um wall street and the bank which becomes jp morgan becomes part of the bank of manhattan that he sets up and kills burr it's not a coincidence once again, it's a conspiracy, guys. It's a conspiracy. Say the word. Conspire. That's what's happening. People are conspiring. It's not a buzzword that's supposed to put your mind in a fearful pretzel. It's just a reality. And as these men are doing their research, they're exposing to us that it was the Jesuit order, Jesuitical agents, who were working on behalf of the city of London because the city of London, as a, a Templar stronghold, uh, was an extension of Roman power because Londinium was the ancient outpost in Britannia that was controlled by Rome. And that ancient sovereignty, that ancient outpost, that financial center has stayed sovereign and independent this whole time. So the inner workings of the inner city of London are the financial powerhouse of Rome. And we're talking about ancient Rome. Um, the, the new church era of Rome is a kind of a new accommodation in history, but we can expect that the Roman will towards total world empire has not changed. They still have legions, they still have knights, they still have senators up there in the Curia. They are called cardinals, and they still have a Roman imperator, and they call him Papa, the Holy the Holy Father. Of course, that's a ridiculous, blasphemous name, but that's the nature of this religion. We have to com continue with Matthew Arrett in this discussion, and he has more an insight and revelation for us. So let's listen some more. Knowing that that conference that, that created those, that constitution, the, the British North America Act, 
1857, July 1st. The conference itself began during the Civil War in Charleston in 1864. So, sorry, 1867 was when we had the DNA passed. Three years earlier in 1864 is when the actual conference happened that wrote it up during the Civil War. What's up with that? Why during the Civil War are you, are you putting so much effort into this? What about Lincoln's allies in Canada? How is it that people don't learn about the fact that there seems to have been, in very high-level positions of power in Canada, people like Isaac Buchanan, the president of the executive uh, party, uh, of, the, of the liberal party of the day, uh, who was an Lincoln ally who fought to create, who was trying to create a, an American Zolverein with Canada as an independent nation working with Lincoln's USA during the Civil War in 1863 um, as a way to block the British dumping of goods that were keeping Canada underdeveloped, that was destroying the United States to create kind of like what uh, uh, Bismarck had been doing in Germany. So to create, it's kind of like, it seems like NAFTA, but it's different because it's based on a different principle. It's based on a, on a protective tariff around the continent, around North, North America. And internal improvements tied to the greenback-style large-scale investments of your rail, of your canals, of your things that are tied to uplifting the, the mental and quality of physical life of people. So it's a very different idea, again, of economy. Don't... don't take the similarities of NAFTA too seriously there. But why were, why were, they out, why were these pro-Lincoln forces ousted? Um, and then why was BC, which had such a pro-annexation movement, because Canada was really at the time just a, a few little like provinces on the, on the Atlantic side? Four. And then British Columbia was this isolated lone colony. What was separating, what was the rest of Canada? It was a private company for the past 260 years before that called the Rupert's Land, a.k.a. Hudson Bay Land. It was a private zone tied to the British East India Company that was like the 80% of Canada. Why did, why did that get sold so quickly? It was sold immediately, pennies on the dollar, by these companies to the Canadian government uh, to, to get uh, British Columbia on board with Confederation because British Columbia didn't want to. They were an isolated colony. They were choking financially. The gold rush had just created a bunch of bubbles that popped. Nobody had a future. The only economic activity they had was with San Francisco. And so why did the British annexation movement to join the United States fail? Why did Lincoln's policy, which was being expressed by people, his advisors, which involved using Alaska as a springboard to take the transcontinental railway, which was finished in 1869 and connected up the West Coast through British Columbia into Alaska, into the connecting zone for the old, for Eurasia, which was supposed to connect down. You can see these maps that I, I, I found that I, I published in my, in my book uh, showcasing like, you know, William Gilpin's international land bridge. Of, of rail going down to Africa, Asia, with the spring, with the connecting point being the Bering Strait. So all of these things should have, that was the momentum. Why didn't it happen? And so from that standpoint, you could better appreciate what was the real geopolitical reasons for the British uh, North American Act, the sale of Alaska, you know, the, the creation of Canada as we know it without the mythologies, you know, just honesty, and it helps. Uh, for the, the second part of your question regarding the Malthusian, the X Club, the 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 restoration of empire in the face of all of this progress, because the empire had had weakened itself enormously. Right, go back in time to that period. If you're a, an imperial, if you're a Lord Palmerston type of geostrategist, looking at your globally extended system, you've just exerted massive resource allocations towards the Opium Wars, the Second Opium Wars against China. You've exerted massive influence and and expenditures in. Uh, supporting the Confederate South. You know, the British were building warships used by the South uh, to fight Lincoln. Uh, that failed. You had already spent a lot of effort in working with France, 
and some corrupt people in the Ottoman Empire to get Russia into the Crimean War to dismantle Russia and also to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. Um, you put a lot of effort into two years of, of trying to destroy the uprisings in India against the controlled famines that killed millions by Malthusian policy. That was the British policy was use the gifts God gave us of famine and disease and war to check population. Malthus writes that directly, you know, <laughs> kill babies unless room can be made from them by the deaths of, deaths of old person, persons. He's a, he's a mathematician. He's, and that's why he's employed by the British East India Company to work at Haleybury College to train, you know, John Stuart Mill <laughs> and all of the, 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 the ideologues who would become the, the, the upper level thought controllers of the empire. So, you know, Britain had, had stretched itself far. And they couldn't stop this momentum for progress. And the nation's embracing a multipolar win-win orientation for uh, developing their, their, their interests, as well as their neighbors, in knowing that we get more out of seeing the world as a non-zero-sum system. You can create more wealth if you create peace, not division. Right? You encourage creative thought instead of stupidity. You can create more in the long term, which is better for everybody. And, and that was that truth. It's a fundamental truth. It's scientifically groundable truth of self-interest it's not just philosophically nice uh that was so powerful and the only way that they could bust it up was i mean there was on the one hand a certain type of like um i think of it as a, as a corporate management reshuffling so when you're when your corporation if you've got a business it's not producing uh revenue anymore there's mismanagement you could either declare bankruptcy and just give up or you could bring in management consultants, evaluate your different departments, you know, re reintroduce innovative ideas. And that's what was done with the British Empire. There was a sort of reorganization under, there was a recognition of a lack of creative uh, adaptability. And uh, you had, as, as I go through in the last chapter of 15, um, Thomas Huxley was a young, very creative, very misanthropic uh, young man who was discovered, he was talent searched and discovered. Um, and was very quickly, by his, within his 20s, made a, very, a leading official within the British Royal, Royal Society. And he was given certain privileges. And again, he wasn't born from a rich family. He was born from a poor family. He just saw syphilis patients. He was working in the ghetto slums of London. He was working bad. So he developed this, this hate. And that hate channeled a lot of creativity. And uh, he was given a responsibility for a project to manage um, a new set of theories that needed to be cooked up to justify scientifically uh, empire and to cohere the empire in a more uh, satisfying way where it could be more unified in its parts. Uh, that became the Darwin Project. So Thomas Huxley became an early enforcer and controller of Darwin. Darwin rarely ever debated, he never actually debated, his own theories in public. It was always Thomas Huxley, his bulldog, who was always going out. And part of the... Um, Part of the, the propaganda machine that was created was his X-Club, which was sort of a dining club set up in Cambridge, interfacing with some of the best misanthropic scientific minds representing different fields of anthropology and sociology and uh, even geology, astrophysics, uh, you know, economics, literature. Matthew Arnold was a dining partner on this thing. Um, and they basically created a regular dining club that organized like an early think tank. Um, a new strategic set of policies and uh, and Nature magazine was uh, created out of this group as well, which I get through um, as, a, as a propaganda instrument. So with this came at least now a new ideological foundation 
to start creating coherence. But that was still 1865 this was created, the X Club, right? Darwin's project was only published in 1859. Um, there was still lack of means of carrying it out. How do you effectuate now the policy? These are nice thoughts, nice evil, whatever thoughts, but how do you carry it out? So the first, there, there were several other think tanks that would do a bit more of the dirty work, one of which was called the Fabian, Fabian Society, and that was set up in uh, 1873, um, using a certain retweaking of some of the programs for anarchist mobs of the Young Europe movement of Mazzini and Palmerston that had been useful for the 1830s and 40s and 50s to just create anarchy and destabilize nations in Europe and also some in the United States, um, but it wasn't coherent enough under a, a, a unified ideology. So that the Fabian Society became sort of a, a socialist, a not a real socialist, it's not a real socialist. These are people who actually, if you look at George Bernard Shaw or the Webbs or later on H.Q. Wells or other members, Bertrand Russell was a member, Julian Huxley was later on a member of the grandson. Um, a lot of the people who were high level Fabians themselves were not, you couldn't consider them socialists because they didn't really care about people. Um, they just liked it as a cover to attract good people who were in labor to a cause that would put them in a, in a controlled environment with the priesthood scientifically managing the system from the, from above. Um, so that became one thing that set up the London School of Economics. Lord Balfour was a member. Uh, Lord McIndoe was a member who uh, went on to create geopolitics. Um, he ran the London School of Economics actually for a while. But then also you had the, the roundtable movement um, using some of the money, all of the money from the, uh, the funds of, of Cecil Rhodes, who had, you know, destroyed Africa, raping up diamonds and, and cotton for a long time in Rhodesia. And uh, when he died, um, his money was used according to his will. And uh, some sponsors, <clears throat> like I think it was William Rothschild was an early one, some other higher level oligarchs, to um, use that money towards the creation of an array of th other types of think tanks called the Roundtable Movement. That was managed by this guy, Lord Milner, who worked in South Africa, too, to put down the Boer War. Well, that was an interesting expose, and for many of you, that's just too much. It's just too much information, it's too much background history, and it's not something that you can really comprehend, and that's okay. But for many of us, this is going to tie in a bigger picture, a larger and inner ring of concentric power that we're going to begin to expose with these episodes. So we need to talk about the Milner School, the Milner Kindergarten, we need to talk about the Round Tables and Cecil Rhodes and the De Beers mining, uh, Diamond Fortune and the war against the Boers in South Africa. The Boers were uh, men who were Protestants who set out to do what the men in America did and, and create their own uh, declaration of independence from the the autocracy and the absolute monarchy that was being established out of London and out of the United Kingdom and they tried to set up their own government in South Africa and they created Cape Town and they brought really a whole bunch of wonderful technological advancements and economic development and societal growth and the advancement of schooling and medicine uh, to the region but ultimately the that was not to be that was not part of the globalist plan and of course the counter-reformation disallows for any free popular governments to, to rise and so you can see that ultimately it was the end of the beginning of the end there in South Africa you can see that they're using racial politics and they're using class warfare and every type of Marxism and communist tactic there to, to bring down the 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 development and the Western civilization that came to South Africa. So this brings us to the end of this particular 
syllabus journal entry. And we have a lot more material here to go through. I have like 15 more things I wanted to get to, but I really couldn't get to it all. And so I just want you to be able to keep pace with the, the modern cutting edge of media research historical analysis and you're not going to get anywhere else so please hope you come back you can use your support you can hit the email get in contact with us thanks again for listening